Good morning. It's good to see you guys today. Thanks for having me back again. So, if you did your homework last week, like last time I was here, I gave you homework. If you recall, I asked you to read Matthew 5 through 7 and see if there was something that God was asking you to step from the sand onto the rock. So, if you have something that you want to share with me, come find me after the service because I would love to hear about that. And if you didn't do it, it's okay. You're still loved. It's all right. There's always a chance. Matthew 5 through 7 is still there, okay? So you still have a chance to do it. It's still there. I'm telling you, just like the snow, right, John? Yeah, John was telling me how much he loves the snow. Not at all. I think the snow is beautiful. I love it. I got to go out on a little walk in it yesterday, and uh, I love the snow, especially when the sun is shining. Um, however, my daughter and her fiancé came home from college. They, were in Minne- they go to school in Minneapolis, and they came home for spring break. Um, they drove home so they could do some wedding planning and all that jazz. And, uh, well, they were supposed to leave yesterday. They did not because lots of roads in North Dakota are closed. Um, actually, all of North Dakota is bright pink on the weather map, which pink is not good. And you don't really pay attention to that if you don't have to drive in it, right? So now we're hoping they can leave tomorrow. Um, So anyway, you can pray that when they do leave, that they can make it safely because North Dakota's a really flat, desolate, windy place. And they're just going to be out there driving for 16 or 17 hours straight at the minimum. So if you think of my daughter, Faith, and her fiancé, Taylor, I would greatly appreciate prayers for them, Um, hopefully for tomorrow. So, um, as we know, this is the Lent season, and um, I've been reading the devotions that have been coming through on the emails, and I, for one, I like that they're short, because, right, like, none of us like something super long to read, at least I don't, especially when I read it in the morning. I'm like, I'm glad this is just a few paragraphs, and I read it, and one of my favorite ones from this week is the one about how wide God's love is. I don't know if you read that one, but it's that he stretched out his arms, and his love is so wide and so deep and so high And that's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. And so I have just really enjoyed um, the the Lenten devotionals. In fact, I grew up, we didn't really celebrate Lent. Um, I come from a Christian tradition that doesn't as much, but I have really enjoyed, like, joining with you guys in that. So thanks for sending me the emails, and thanks for letting me be part of that. Um, So as we know, Easter is coming up. It's why we celebrate Lent. And so today we're going to talk about one of the things that happened in the seven days leading up to Easter. Um, A lot of things happened. A lot of events happened um, to Jesus, right? There was a lot of emotions in that last week of Jesus' life, if you think about it. So many different things. So we're going to start with Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew 26 today. Matthew 26, verse 1 says... When Jesus had finished saying all these things. Okay, so what were all these things, right? Like, we got to know some context here. Well, in Matthew 24, the disciples had gone to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and they had said, tell us when the end is going to come. Tell us when you're going to come back. Tell us what all the signs will be of the end. And so Jesus had spent almost two full chapters telling them about what the end was going to be like and about the final judgment and what to look for. So he just got done saying that, and uh, he just got done saying that, and so now he said to his disciples in verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. 
Okay, so the Passover. If you recall, the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. And they had called out to God during all that time to come and rescue them. Well, God spoke to Moses, and he said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses went, and now Pharaoh was not super excited about this, right? Like, he was like, yeah, right, I've had these slaves for 400 years. I'm not just going to be like, here, go ahead, all hundreds of thousands of you, why don't you leave? So God sent plagues on Egypt, right? Some of the plagues, he sent 10 plagues. Some of the plagues affected the Israelites and the Egyptians, like the plague of frogs, okay? Like thousands of frogs everywhere. Some of the plagues only affected the Egyptians, like the plague of darkness. So interesting that only part of the land was in complete darkness. Well, still, Pharaoh would not let the people go. And God kept saying, I'm going to do this so they will know that I am God. Well, finally, God said, here's the final plague, the death of the firstborn son. And he told the Israelites, I want you to take an unblemished, unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb, and I want you to slaughter it, and I want you to take its blood and put it on the door frames of your house so that when the angel of death comes, it will pass over your house and you will be saved. Well, when this happened, you can imagine that Pharaoh was like, get these people out of here. Their God, he's, he's, he's a big God. So he tells them to leave. And the, Egyptian, or the Israelites get to leave Egypt. Now God is like, I want you to remember, my people of Israel, that I saved you. I want you to remember how I delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh. So he instituted the Passover festival. And it was a time, eight days of celebration, where they would do certain rituals and have certain um, things that they did to remember God's deliverance out of Egypt. So when Jesus says the Passover is going to be in two days, he knows what's coming. And then he says, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Hmm, it seems like he might know something more than they know, doesn't it? But we also know that news about Jesus was spreading, and not everybody liked Jesus. Not everybody liked what Jesus was saying, nor how he was saying it. In fact, in Matthew 26, verse 3, it says, then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. I find it so interesting that the chief priests and the elders thought they were in control, right? They were like, okay, we are not going to do it during the festival, even though Jesus had just said, in two days, this is going to happen, right? But the chief priests and the elders, they were like, we got the plan. We want to make sure there's no riots because the Romans are not going to like that. And so they thought they were in control. Do you ever do that? Right? I know sometimes I think I'm in control of how the plan's going to go, of how everything is going to line up for me. Even this week, I, when I said yes to preaching this week, I did not know my daughter was coming home for spring break. 
nor did I expect to get sick for two days. So poor Margaret here got my scriptures last night. Okay, so thank you, Margaret, for going with the flow on that one because uh, that is not how I planned it. So the chief priests, the elders, they thought they were in control. And yet Jesus knew something different. In fact, Jesus knew that he had to be arrested and crucified during the Passover. Because it had been prophesied that he would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would be the final Lamb whose blood, just like the blood that was on the doorposts, he would be the final Lamb whose blood would be the atonement for their sins. His blood would be the payment for their sins, for our sins, once and for all. In fact, his blood would remove all the effects of our sin and the penalty of our sin. When Jesus said, in two days is Passover and I will be handed over and crucified, there was something bigger going on than those chief priests and elders even knew or understood. And I love that God sees our situations and sees our future even better than we do. And he has a plan bigger than what we could think. And I even think for your church, God is not done. And God sees what's happening. And even though it doesn't all make sense, God is still working. And God has a plan. And God is in the business of doing miracles and of providing. So let's keep reading. Verse 6 says, While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, what a nickname, right? Would you like that name? Simon the leper. Now, leprosy back then was a big no-no, right? You got leprosy, you were put out of the city, no one could touch you, people weren't even supposed to talk to you, you were like, ew, right? Like, no one wanted to be with you. So, if Simon the leper was in his home, and Jesus was there, what can we assume? That Simon was healed. And we can assume that Jesus did the healing, because you weren't really hearing of people being healed of leprosy in those days, right? So Simon had been healed, but Simon also could not have been a big leader, because lepers wouldn't have been able to be leaders in Israel. He wouldn't have been able to be a famous guy. He wouldn't have been able to be, you know, some bigwig. He's just a normal guy. A normal guy with a big story. A normal guy, an ordinary guy, whose life was a mess. Whose life was filled with shame. Because having leprosy was very shame-filled. And here he is, just a normal, ordinary guy. And Jesus comes to his house. Jesus thinks he is worth it. Not because of anything Simon did, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did in his heart. For each of us, none of our lives are too messy, too shame-filled, too full of doubt, 
for Jesus to say, if you open your, the doors of your heart, I want to come and I want to meet you. I want to come and I want to show you a little bit more about who I am. None of us are too messy, too boring, too ordinary for Jesus to come. And so he's at the home of Simon the leper. And verse 7 says, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured out on his head as he was reclining at the table. Okay, reclining at the table, right? Back then, that's how they ate. They had a low table, they'd recline, they'd lean over on their elbows, and they'd eat with their other hand. And this is how they ate. So this is what he was doing. He was reclining. And this woman comes in with this expensive perfume in an alabaster jar. So what is alabaster? Alabaster is a compact, finely, te finely textured, usually white, translucent plaster that's carved into ornaments. So that's a big, long... Anyway, it's like a vase with a long neck, okay? It's not super big, and likely it had no handles on it. And also, most of the time, the only way that it could be used is if the top was broken off, and it all had to be used at the same time, okay? Now, we know that the perfume that she had in that alabaster jar was expensive. It says it's expensive, but look at what the disciples say. Verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why the waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Okay, so this perfume was worth a lot. And here she was, breaking it open and pouring it over the head of Jesus. Now, it would have been customary in that day, right, when guests come to your house that you wash their feet and maybe even put a little drop of perfume in the water or maybe a little dab on the head of perfume would be the customary way to honor the guests in your house. But seriously, this woman took her whole jar and she poured it all out. It was likely an heirloom. It was probably something that had been passed down in her family. It would have probably been one of her most treasured possessions. And here she is, breaking it open and pouring it on Jesus' head. Not only that, but in, those, in that culture, the men would recline at the table, and the women would be doing the serving, and the women would be eating together. So when this woman approached Jesus, who was reclining at the table, you better believe all eyes were on her. What was she doing? Does she not know her place? And I wonder, like, what was Mary thinking that day? What was Mary thinking right before she went out? Did she ask her friends, should I do it? Should I wait? Wait, well, what if he says this? Was, was she yearning for their opinions? Did she want their approval? Did she take a step forward towards Jesus and then turn around in fear, not sure if she should do it? Had she planned it, or was this completely spontaneous? Was she thinking, am I worth it? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? 
What was going through Mary's mind right before she took that bold step to go towards him? And I bet you're wondering, who is this woman anyway? Right? Isn't that what you're all thinking? I thought so. Well, I'm glad that you asked that. Because let's figure out if maybe who she was. Now, we're going to go to John chapter 12. There is, a, there is an event recorded in all four Gospels of a woman anointing Jesus and putting perfume on him. Now, most scholars will believe that there are, these are actually two instances. There's the one in Luke. is a separate one than the one that is in Matthew, Mark, and John. Okay? I am not a scholar, but all the reading that I did, there is really good proof to believe this. Okay? So, let's go to John 12 verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive per perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, so some of you are going to say, wait a second, Matthew said two days, John saying six days, okay? Well, we know that Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before the Passover, but that doesn't mean that's when the dinner was held, okay? Because just this, now I'm not a scholar, I'm going with what they're saying here, but it really does make sense. Like you can say like, Jesus arrived there, maybe the dinner was given four days after he arrived, okay? Not only that, but it, so it doesn't say the dinner happened immediately, and it also doesn't say here where the dinner took place. All we know is that Martha was again serving, right? And that could have happened to anyone's home because when they had a group, the women would get together and they, they would serve and they would take care of any big dinner that happened. We also know that Mary came and poured expensive perfume on his feet. Now, Matthew said it was on his head, John is saying it was on his feet. The chances are that it was on both. Because have you ever had two people see the same event and they can see it a little bit differently or they record what's most important to them, right? So likely she anointed both. So Mar Martha is serving again. And I say again because we all know the story, right, of where Jesus came to Mary and Martha's house and Mar Martha is serving and doing all these things to get all the preparations done and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and listening and Martha gets all mad. Why isn't she helping me, right? So we know that Martha, she likes to serve. I would venture to say her love language is acts of service, wouldn't you, right? And then we have Mary pouring this expensive perfume on Jesus' head and on his feet. And the disciples, especially Judas, are ticked. Verse, verse 4 says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So yeah. Why did she give away her most prized possession? Why would she take this opportunity? This perfume that she had saved that was so precious to her. And why would she do this? Why 
would she pour it out for Jesus? Sometimes there's more to people's story than we can see at first, isn't there? Maybe, just maybe, Mary is responding to something that the rest of them hadn't experienced. Maybe she's responding to something that Jesus had become so personal to her. Often before we can understand someone's chapter 12, we need to understand their chapter 11, right? Hint, hint. The, verse, the first verse of chapter 12 gives us a little hint of Mary's story. Verse 1, it says, Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the, de- from the dead. John 11 explains that Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick. Mary and Martha had called to Jesus, sent message, and said, Please come, our brother is very sick. And Jesus chose not to come right away. Jesus chose to wait days before coming. And in that time, Lazarus had died. So now he's ready to come, and he's heading towards Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus had lived. John eleven twenty 20 says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Why did Mary stay at home? My guess is she was absolutely devastated. She was in such deep grief. Her heart was broken. Her dear brother had just died. She had asked Jesus to come and he hadn't come. And she was devastated. But Martha, did she stay home? Oh, no, no, no. She went right out there. I have a feeling Martha wanted to give Jesus a piece of his, her mind. Like, come on now. We asked. You didn't come. Do you know how hard this is? My guess is Martha's all action, and she was ready to take Jesus on. But as soon as she got in his presence, she was filled with hope. I don't think she gave Jesus a piece of her mind. Let's look what she said. In verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Suddenly, Martha was filled with hope. Because that's what the presence of Jesus does. The presence of Jesus gives us hope, even in dire situations. And what is so cool is that in this moment, Jesus gives one of his most powerful I am statements to a woman. A woman who liked to serve. A woman who wasn't afraid to say, Jesus! It's not fair. Jesus, if you would have been here. In verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. 
And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And she went back to her sister Mary. She went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. As soon as Jesus called her, she's like, Jesus knows me. Jesus sees me. And in the midst of this deep, darkest valley, she's running to Jesus. Jesus called, and Mary started running. She wanted to be close to her friend, her teacher. Maybe she felt that he would be comforting. Maybe she just wanted to be in his presence. Verse 32 says, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Look at the faith that both Mary and Martha had. They truly believed that if Jesus would have been there, their brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had, who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Here Mary is brave enough to say, if only you would have been here. She felt safe enough with her Jesus, with her teacher to say, to be honest and say, if only you would have been here. I thought you were going to come through for me. And Jesus was okay with her saying this. In fact, in the midst of this devastation and this deep grief, Jesus is moved with compassion. He's moved with empathy. And Jesus doesn't blow her off and say, oh my gosh, woman, get your emotions under control. He doesn't say, oh, come on, at least I'm here now. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus sees her because Jesus cares. In fact, Jesus wept because he was moved with such compassion towards Mary. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone, a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by, the time, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Martha is definitely the very practical one, isn't she? Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
oh my gosh, Lazarus is alive. Lazarus had been dead four days, and now he's a walking man. And he's walking out with grave clothes around him, wrapped all up. Can you imagine what Mary and Martha must have thought at that moment? Holy smokes. Their brother was dead, and now he's alive. So then Jesus comes to Bethany, and there's a dinner given in Jesus' honor. You better believe Mary and Martha are going to be there. They are not going to miss out on that. And Martha is going to do her thing. She's going to make sure all the preparations are good. It's her way of saying thank you, is I want to make sure every detail is ready and is done. And then Mary, we see, is giving away her most prized possession. And the disciples call it a waste. But how did Mary think about it? What did Mary think about that little alabaster jar and the perfume that she dumped out? Those at the table would have thought a dab would have been just fine, but Mary gave it all. For Mary, Jesus was worth it all. Maybe she didn't have the words to express to Jesus how she felt and how thankful she was. She didn't have something that was fit to actually say thank you and bless this man. But what she had, she wanted to give it all. Because to her, Jesus was worth it. And that was her worship. In fact, the word worship comes from an old English word that means worth-ship. So when we worship, it's giving something great worth and great value. Our worship is saying you are worth it. You know, sometimes we don't understand the depths of people's story with Jesus. We don't understand what they've gone through. But here we see Mary. Mary had experienced Jesus when the, in the depths of despair, in her darkest moment when her brother was dead. And here Jesus had stood by her and given her strength and given her hope. Mary knew firsthand the grace and the love of her teacher. She didn't pour out her perfume because it made any sense. She poured out her perfume because Jesus was worth it to her. That's why she did it. She had experienced his love and kindness personally and intimately. That part where, it, where Martha had said, Jesus, you don't want to roll away that stone because he's going to stink. But verse 12, verse 3, it says, when Mary dumped her bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet, verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance 
of that perfume. Jesus took what smelled like death, healed the dark place, and Mary's worship filled the whole house with a sweet scent. You see, that is what worship is. When we recognize the worth of the one who comes in and touches the dark, stinky, ugly places of our hearts, and we respond knowing that he is worth our worship. Mary decided to invest what she had and what she valued the most on the one who had touched her life in a very real and intimate way. Her worship, her extravagant gift, which is basically what the disciples were saying, right? Oh, this is too extra extravagant. It's, it's not worth it. But she said he was worth it. Now, I imagine that Jesus saw her coming, right? We know Jesus knew everything. So Jesus is reclining at this table, and he knows that Mary's coming. I imagine Jesus' eyes to be so kind and so welcoming. I imagine that he smiled at her and just encouraged her to come. He didn't want her to look at all the critics, all the people who were judging what she was doing. I imagine he locked eyes with her and said, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me, not what everyone else in this room is thinking or saying. I imagine his eyes were filled with such gentleness. Welcoming her to come. In fact, when the critics did start with their words of why this waste, what does Jesus say? Matthew 26, 10. Aware of this, all the criticism going on, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What Mary did was beautiful, according to Jesus, and will never be forgotten. And now, everyone else in the room had a choice what they were going to do with Jesus' words. They had a choice what they were going to do with what they just saw Mary pour out and give. Were they going to believe that Jesus was the one was the Messiah and was going to do what he actually said, be handed over and crucified? Or were they going to refuse to believe it and betray him? And we know that one man, that was his choice. Verse 4 says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? 
So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas, he was indignant and he was angry. And his choice was betrayal. You see, Judas did not let Jesus captivate his heart. Judas didn't let Jesus come in and touch him in a real way. Everyone at that table that day had seen Jesus do miracles, had heard Jesus' words. They all had great knowledge of him. But not everyone understood his worth. Sometimes knowledge is a false indicator of knowing and experiencing the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And it's really easy to judge when you haven't experienced something yourself. It's very easy to judge when you don't have a personal experience. And maybe some of them kind of took Jesus for granted. He's been with us for three years. Yeah, he's cool. Yep, he's done some cool stuff. Is he really worth it? It's easy to take people for granted. And it's easy to take Jesus for granted. But when we have experienced the true life and truth of Jesus for ourselves, no amount of worship is wasted. No amount of worship is really enough. Jesus didn't want Mary to be concerned about the critics. He thought her worship was beautiful. And his response to her worship was that it was going to always be remembered. Now Jesus had said, Mary does this preparing me for burial. Do you think Mary knew that? I'm guessing Mary did not, was not aware of that, and that's not why she did it. But I wonder if to Jesus, he took that worship and he gave him encouragement for what he knew was coming in two days. He knew that he was going to be arrested, brutally tortured, that he was going to be crucified, he was going to be mocked, he knew it was coming. And so her worship and her gift to him was giving him the strength to say, okay, I can do it. And this is why I can do it. Because they're worth it. I don't think the disciples knew what was coming. They had been told, but they didn't know what Jesus was going to have to endure because he thought they were worth it. Jesus was preparing to go to the cross And when he was on that cross that day, he saw you. And he thought you were worth it. In the midst of your shame, 
your sin, your mess-ups, your anger, your pride, your jealousy. Jesus saw you. And you know what he did? He broke open his whole alabaster. Because he knew that you were worth it that day. 2,000 years ago, he said, they are worth it. So what do we do in response to that? When we know that Jesus thought we were worth his whole life. We all have a Lazarus. We all have a reason to worship. A reason to be grateful. A reason to say thank you, Jesus. That you took me from this and you gave me this. That you rescued me. That you've given me hope. We all have a Lazarus, a reason to worship. And we all have an alabaster. We all have worship. We all have something we can give. And we all worship something, don't we? Something is worth our time, our energy, our resources. You know, if you look around and there's people that you've seen that have given so much to Jesus, or they want to get close to him, or they spend time in the word, or they spend time in prayer, or some people, they give up their whole lives to go on the mission field, and you're like, why? Because it's their worship. Because he's worth it. Because he's worthy of it. And we can't judge someone's worship because we don't know their experience. You know, when we're at a sporting event, we raise our hands and we cheer and we're so excited because we think our team is worth it. When I raise my hands in worship, it's because I'm saying, God, you know my name. You know who I am. You know my story. You have walked with me through the valleys. You've given me hope. You've given me a reason to get up in the morning. You are worthy of my praise. You are worthy. So today, think about what's your Lazarus? What's your reason for even sitting here today? Is it habit? Is it because you should? Or is it because you have a Lazarus story and you're like, he is worthy and I want to give him all my worship? He is worthy. And Mary saw it that day. And she poured it out for him. 
And I want to tell you that Jesus sees you. Just like he welcomed Mary towards him, he welcomes you. He says, I love you. You're worth it. So as we go throughout our day, just like Margaret had said, we can do pop-up prayers. We can do pop-up worship. Because he is worthy of it. And he thought you were worth dying for. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you look on us with such kindness. I thank you for each Lazarus story here. Because without one, these people would not be sitting here. Lord, please remind us of what you have brought us from. Please remind us of who you are to us and where we would be without you so that we can truly give you all of our worship. During this Easter season, Lord, I pray that we will treasure the fact that you thought we were worth it. That you thought we were worth dying for. That you thought we were worth being tortured and mocked and beaten, and you did it for us. Let us worship you with hearts abandoned and extravagant giving. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read something to you real quick before I'm done. I know. I speak long. I don't know, and you keep having me back, so. <laughs> anyway, there's a pic, do you have a, that picture, Margaret, by any chance? No? no? Okay. There, there's a beautiful picture of Jesus, and it says, I'd like, you, I'd like to introduce you to my best friend. Boy, we've been through a lot together. When I've been filled with joy, he stood beside me laughing. When I was heartbroken, he wrapped his arms around me and cried. Whatever the experience, no matter the choice, he's never given up on me, even though I've given him a million reasons to give up. He's always been with me, especially in those moments when one step more seemed like one step too many. He strengthened me, guided me, and stood beside me. He's my greatest confidant and closest ally. You see, for my best friend, friend, there is no such thing as too broken, too lost, or too far gone. The reality is that I cannot do anything to make him stop loving me. It's simply not in his nature. It's just not something he can do. No matter what, he will love me through whatever and beyond forever. So the question may be, do I love him because he loved me first? Perhaps. Do I believe in him because he believed in me first? Maybe. 
But regardless of the order, I know that my best friend lives as surely as I know the sun will rise. Not merely because I can see it on the horizon, but because by its light I see everything. He lives, and because he lives, I too have been risen from the depths of my sorrow to the paramount heights of my greatest joy. Because he lives, my life has purpose. I will love you, my best friend, through whatever and beyond forever. That is the Jesus.